Hello everyone, it's November 5th, 2019. On this episode, we're going to decipher the H3 launch vehicle and its lunar ambitions. It's a very cool concept that's full of hardware upgrades and where that's not enough, making more than one trip. That's how you do it. Let's do the show and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 234 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So we're not going to properly talk about it this week, but uh, since you like to, at least I know Ben likes to make fun of me for liking it so much, I do want to talk about reaction <laughs> engines one first and last time. This no, 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 no. Let, let me be clear. Let me be clear. <laughs> I, I am not making fun of you. Like, okay. for real. Not, no, like, you're right. I think I it's so it. cool. You, you just like to tease me. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, hey, look, this is this is David's favorite thing. Like, that's a mm. cool thing. I th- well, because I think it's so neat. But, I mean, just a quick little update on them. Uh, they did do a Mach 5 test, which is where they basically, they took the exhaust of a regular jet engine and fed it somehow into the Sabre engine, and it performed just fine somehow. But I don't understand that because they had to have, you know, mixed the exhaust with, I guess, the right yeah, amount of O2 or whatever. Yeah, re-enriched because, it or something. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, so you have hot gas feeding into this engine, and it takes that in, compresses it, and burns properly, uh, which is really neat. And that was carried out at a test facility here in the States, even though this is a company from the UK. Yeah, so so I think this test was just a test of the pre-cooler. I don't think it was a test of the right. whole engine. You're but right, that, yeah. That's yeah. the... That's the difficult thing, isn't it? Yeah, that is the key technology there is that pre-cooler. Like, the pre-cooler is part of a far more complex engine cycle, um, but I guess all engine cycles are. But this one maybe a, a little bit more so. So, yeah, they would have to test the entire engine, um, which I don't yeah. know when that's going to happen, but they are working towards that yeah. next, and they seem to have the yeah. – uh, the money to do it. Uh, so it should just be a matter of time. So yeah, it's a very cool thing. So Sam in the chat points out that, you know, they're testing in the US because there aren't that many rocket test facilities in the UK. And actually, this is really cool. Um, he says that Orbex actually uses Copenhagen suborbitals test stand in Denmark. And like, that's such a cool, like feather in the cap for cop sub. Like they, mm-hmm. you know, like they lend out their test stand. That's really cool. And uh, I said, how cool is it that they use that test stand? And, and Ben Hallard in the chat says, uh, after this test, it's significantly cooler. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So I guess with that, we can move on to this week in spaceflight history. Let's talk about the yeah. past. So Yeah. So so first, um, speaking of Ben Hallard, um, he tweeted at us uh, last week. And I, I wanted to just give him credit because I didn't mention it last week. And I think it's really cool. Um, So he tweeted and said, no clue this week, but regarding this week's historic spacewalk, uh, 1022. So, so this was, you know, two weeks ago when, um, when we had the first, you know, female only astronaut, two women on EVA at the same time. Um, So he said, regarding this historic spacewalk, um, back in 1022, 2007, STS-120 launched with Pamela McElroy in command. And so STS-120 visited ISS during Expedition 16, which was commanded by Peggy Whitson. So that was the first time two female mission commanders were on orbit at the same time. That's pretty cool. Hmm. And it's nice that the date was was pretty close. I mean, not not quite close enough, but Hmm. but pretty close. So I think that's a cool little, uh, what would you call it? Serendipitous 
uh, spaceflight history. I like that. Okay. Um, so for this week, the clue was Wrinkly Guinea Pig, and our winners are Tech Dragon, Hot Stuff, McToddlepots, and Valentine Frank. <laughs> so that's that's two new names and one absolutely fantastic name. I actually went and checked because I, I thought that maybe this was somebody guessing and then changing their Twitter name. Uh, just just to hear a funny name on the show, uh, but no, their their actual uh, URL is hot stuff with toddle pot. So, just <laughs> the best uh, one so far. I don't I don't know who you are, hot stuff, but hats off. Seems like a pretty cool uh, pretty cool account. All right. Um, so this week in space flight history is the 29th of October, 1998. It was the launch of STS 95. So I was really shocked that we hadn't talked about this in the past. Um, we've kind of talked about it with another event, which we'll get to closer to the end. But this was um, a free-flying mission. It didn't dock to ISS, um, and it flew a number of uh, experiments, including a single-module space hab, Spartan 201-5. Um, so Spartan 201 actually flew previously. Um, so it, it's basically a free-flyer satellite that shuttle deploys the beginning of the mission and picks up at the end of the mission, and hmm. it's, uh, it's a space telescope. And uh, for the first flight, um, they had an RCS failure, like as soon as they deployed it. And so they had to do an EVA to go retrieve it. I think we've talked about that flight in the past, uh, but this was its actual uh, successful mission. Um, then also was a, a suite of experiments called HOST, um, H-O-S-T. So this is an acronym that includes another acronym. So I'm going to, I'm going to read it so that it sounds right for host. So this is HST orbital systems test, H O S T. But of course, HST stands for Hubble space telescope. So this was in preparation for a Hubble servicing mission. And so they flew four components that they wanted to test in space before they actually put them on Hubble. So first was um, the first microgravity test of a new cooling system. So they, have basically like a combustion engine that drives the, the cooling system. So they wanted to test that in zero G. Um, that's pretty cool. Richard uh, is really going to like this uh, because it has a reverse turbocharger on it. And we spent a lot of time talking about reverse turbochargers. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's for you, uh, Richard Durden. Uh, then second, they had a computer on board that they were going to put on Hubble. And so they were testing the radiation hardening uh, to see if there was anything that needed extra shielding. And they also um, wanted to test the software to, sing, to see how it uh, handled single event upsets, which is where you have literally a, a, a cosmic ray or a solar bit of radiation that hits a single bit in the computer and flips it. Um, and so it's a single event upset where you have one bit that's changed and nothing else. And so you have to be able to detect that all of a sudden your computations are wrong and, and fix it. But it's usually solved by having multiple um, computations run, and then you compare them to see if one of them had a single event upset. Uh, third, there was a solid state um, storage device. So this was actually a backup article, like a, an extra one they had lying around. And so they wanted to test it to see how it compared to the one that they installed on Hubble. And then finally, they tested a fiber optic communication system, which I didn't realize that Hubble ever got fiber optics on board, but, uh, but that's what they were testing. Uh, so that's host. Then they also had the International Extreme Ultraviolet Hitchhiker Payload, which was six experiments clustered into one uh, studying extreme ultraviolet 
uh, teloscopy. Um, it also included PANSAT, the Petite Amateur Navy Satellite. So this is basically the uh, the Navy University. What's it called? U.S. Naval Academy. Yeah, the Naval Academy. Jeez, I could I could get shot for that. Uh, so the the U.S. Naval Academy basically built a small satellite, and they called it the the Petite Amateur Navy Satellite. And Petite is a relative term because it was definitely smaller. Uh, but I think it was still like 150 pounds, so definitely not a CubeSat. Uh, and then uh, one of the other experiments they had on board was John Glenn. So we actually took a photo of all four of us, um, the us three hosts and then Richard Durden, who, who met us in D.C. We took a photo of all four of us standing in front of Friendship 7, John Glenn's mercury capsule so john glenn only ever flew twice um once in this historic you know first american in space flight and then he flew again on shuttle and uh he was called a human guinea pig for geriatric studies so uh <laughs> hence the clue it, it's interesting because you know uh john glenn is a, a very interesting person who's done very interesting things and he basically got on this flight by begging nasa to let him be an old man in space um, <laughs> which is it's fantastic right um so he's uh the oldest person who's ever flown in space i believe he was 70 something they did a, a number of medical experiments on him mostly comparing microgravity environment to aging and that's kind of nice because they had a, a baseline from you know him flying in space as a younger person and then one of the really interesting things is that during the friendship seven flight you know they overflew australia or, or he overflew australia and um, Perth and Rockingham, both of these towns left all of their lights on. So they turned all of the municipal lights on, uh, all the residents turned all their house lights on so that he could see them at night. Um, and what's really hmm. cool is I didn't know this until I was researching for this segment, but they did the exact same thing for STS-95. How cool is that? Ah, um, uh, Australia's cool. connection to early U.S. spaceflight and indeed, you know, continuing U.S. spaceflight uh, is it's so charming. Um, what's the name of that movie? Is it uh, The Dish? Um, where yes. they Talk about. Yeah. Talk about supporting uh, uh, Apollo 11 with the DSN. Out there. Oh, so cool. It just it feels really nice. I like it. So uh, my final uh, bullet point here is titled Space is Scary. So um, this sh this shuttle during main engine ignition, the drag chute door fell off. So when shuttle's landing, it's got this drag chute that pops out the back to help it slow down, um, because basically the shuttle landing complexes, both the one in uh, well, there there are two that have actually been used: one in Kennedy, one uh, at Edwards, and there's also one at White Sands, and I think there's another contingency landing. Uh, facility, but basically the runways are super, super, super long because shuttle just takes forever to slow down and stop. Mm -hmm. And so to help uh, allay that, they have uh, an air brake, but they also have a drag chute they can deploy. So all that to say, during the launch, they ignited the main engines and the drag chute door fell off. And it's really interesting because I don't think that they have telemetry. <laughs> Uh, tied to uh, tied to an abort computer that allows them to abort because remember they um, they ignite the main engines at like t minus six what is it six point six seconds yep. uh, they start they start igniting the SSMEs and they have those those six seconds to make sure that they come up to full pressure um, because then they ignite the solid boosters 
And when those solid boosters light, there's no shutting them down. You have to, you have to fly and you basically can't even abort until those things burn out. And so there are all these different things that can cause an abort after the SSMEs, the, the space shuttle main engines ignite. And apparently one of those abort conditions is not the drag chute door falling <laughs> off because it, it came off uh, during ignition and it even bounced off of one of the engines. Oh um, yeah. Isn't that terrifying? Mm. Um, so they continued, they had a, a otherwise uneventful launch. And so they, you know, are, are looking at not having this door, which is obviously uh, protecting uh, the chute during reentry. And so they were worried that they were going to uh, damage the chute. So they decided not to use it, um, which resulted in a much longer run out uh, during landing. Like if that was enough, not only were they worried about if they deployed it, that they would have issues. They were they were worried about it deploying on its own. Um, and so they had um, telescopic cameras focused on the back end of the shuttle, making sure that there wasn't, you know, a, a, an early deployment. Really, uh, really kind of a bizarre situation. And then if that's not enough, um, once they got to orbit, one of their RCS thrusters, I think it was one of the ones in, in the aft on the RCS pod, actually started leaking. And so luckily they have shut off valves so they don't lose all their propellant. And luckily they have a gazillion RCS pods or RCS thrusters, so they you know, they had plenty of redundancy. It wasn't an issue, but yeah, they, they were leaking fuel on orbit. So I, I wanted to leave you with a quote from John Glenn. So when John Glenn arrived on orbit the first time, he said, zero G and I feel fine. And it's such a great quote. You have um, your one G and I feel fine. I was wondering. Yeah. So on, on landing. Yeah, exactly. So on landing, once, once they had wheel stop, uh, John Glenn said, one G and I feel fine over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm not sure I might be wrong here, but was it not him who on reentry, like I've heard this, I don't know if it's true that he kind of like stood up, like, you know, like during the reentry phase and he was like taking pictures or something, which he shouldn't have been doing. So he was like pulling three G's or so during reentry. Oh, really? I remember hearing, yeah, that story. I didn't know if it was him i don't remember either that he was like standing up out of his seat which i didn't know you could do i mean you could do but you really really shouldn't but maybe he just was like <laughs> i'm gonna get up for this one and there's like plasma you can see the plasma mm -hmm. streaking across the ship and you're standing up i guess to get a better view of it in fact i think that that's what it was he oh, he was trying to get some pictures of the plasma outside the windows there and he couldn't quite see them very well so he like got up out of his seat i think that wow, was him. i've never heard that i mean I know that that we have definitely gotten video uh, during reentry, so it's not like mm -hmm. you have to, you know, sit there and hold on tight like uh, like Soyuz. Uh, and that's probably that's a bad characterization, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but no, I'd never heard that story. Was it Scott Manley that talked about it? He I might think have it was him. talked about that. Yeah, it very well could have been because I do listen to it, that. Yeah. It, yeah, it was a video, and the, they just I remember afterwards characterizing it that this person's basically like like I don't know riding it like a surfboard, kind of like was the 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 right. thoughts that the mm -hmm. person was invoking. You know, they're standing, they're gliding in on the plasma. And, yeah, I think I saw the same video. It probably was Scott Manley, most likely because who doesn't yeah. watch him? Mm -hmm. That was an awesome This Week in Space Flight History and what we have for next week. Oh, thank you. Well, next week in Space Flight History, the clue is solidarity. Hmm. <laughs> this is going to be a good one, you guys. 1974, solidarity. All right. I am pretty clueless, but as always, I'll be looking forward to finding out <laughs> what the event was. You'll like this one. Well, if anyone out there thinks that they know what this is about, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck, everybody.
So let's talk about uh, Jax's H3 rocket. We've never really discussed this in depth, but I guess now would be a good time because they have some interesting mm -hmm. stuff on the horizon. So they're doing some upgrades. I'm sure that we're all familiar with uh, the H2 rockets, uh, the H2A and B. First, let's talk about uh, the nomenclature here because uh, that's something that I had to read up a bit on H2A and H2B and what do those numbers and letters mean? H1 uh, flew like late 80s, early 90s, and that's H hyphen I, the Roman numeral one. Mm -hmm. And there's H2, which flew from the end of H1 to like the end of the 90s. And then uh, then H2A. And again, that's H-I-I-A. H-I-I-A, Roman numeral 2A. Started flying in like 2001. And then uh, H2B, I think, came online in like 2010. Mm -hmm. um, and so right now, H2A and H2B fly concurrently, and they tend to fly, you know, once or twice uh, every year. And H2B is the one that's bigger, a little more powerful, and so that's mm -hmm. the one that takes the transfer vehicle to station, mm -hmm. not the yeah. H2A. So what is the, is it just the boosters? Is that what the A and the B stand for? Um, no, both of them, uh, both of them fly with boosters, but H2B, I, I believe... I, I believe H2A only flies with two. H2B can fly with four, but H2B also has a wider diameter on the first stage right. and can support a larger fairing. Okay, so I didn't know that. So it's the diameter of the stage. That's uh -huh. really cool. Okay, yeah. Sam says that both can fly with four boosters. Okay. Yeah. And so H3, which I'm just going to say here is H numeral three and not H hyphen <laughs> I, 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 no hyphen, no Roman numeral. Well, to be fair, the, the, the Mitsubishi people themselves were just throwing <laughs> yeah. the Roman numeral. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. If it's good um, enough for so them, it's good enough for us. Yeah. So, so H3 derives uh, a lot of heritage from H2B and I'm, I'm assuming there's some heritage from H2A just because it's a predecessor, but, um, but it's, it's really pulling more from H2B because it's, mm. it's a bigger engine or a, a bigger vehicle. So mm -hmm. H3, just like H2B has got two engines on the first stage, but a totally different thrust uh, support structure underneath it. Right. Or, or I guess ab above it. <laughs> okay. So, and then I guess, like you said, the H2 A and B variants are both flying right now. Uh, but the H2 A, we should expect, uh, or they're anticipating retiring it in 2023 and then the H2B in 2024. And this is already after uh, H3 is expected to launch. Uh, it's made and launched next sure year. Are you sure about that? I thought, I thought that uh, H2B was going to retire before H2A. Oh, H2B retiring like 2020. 2020. Yeah. That's oh, I, I thought, thought you meant... I, I, I misread this as the next year. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Okay. No, 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 good, good, good. Okay, so H2B, all right, we're swapping that out for an H3 next year, essentially. And then H2A is going to have a longer life, but in 2023, that's when that one's anticipated. Yeah, and, and that, that makes sense because that way you have more diversity of payloads, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, and I, I thought this was an interesting quirk. Every time we're telling you these numbers, these are fiscal years. So it could be March of the oh. next year, actually. Okay. So... Okay. So for the H3 launch vehicle, right, um, I'm looking up how they uh, classify or how they name these things. And it's a little bit simpler, at least to me. So uh, the H3 is like followed by a dash and then 
two numbers and then another letter. And the first number tells you the number of engines on that first booster or on that first stage. Uh, the second number tells you the number of solid rocket boosters, if any. And then the last letter will indicate the size of the fairing, um, which could either be long or short. So that's easier for me to understand. I feel like because that makes sense to me because I still yeah I've always been a little bit murky on how they named the H2 ones that's just always confused me <laughs> but uh, this seems simpler so I, so I guess we should talk about this new upgraded H3 thing um the engines are the LE9 engines now these are the same ones that are currently on the H2 launch vehicles or are they different It'll be uh, an improved version of them, but essentially, I mean, it'll be different engines, but from the same kind of heritage and family. So there's yeah, Sam in the chat characterizes them as entirely new. Entirely new. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh. Okay. So the current, the current, uh, the current ones are stage combustion. This is going to be a, a staged bleed combustion, I think, is what they're calling it. I know it's an expander cycle. I'm sorry, expander, expander bleed. There you go. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, exactly, Dave. Right now, none of this is really news, right? So the news is that Mitsubishi Heavy Industries Deputy Manager of Space Systems Design Shoyo Hyodo presented at IAC. Uh, none of us were there. Some potential lunar or potential upgrades to H3 to make it basically friendly to lunar uh, missions, uh, specifically Gateway and uh, just getting on the surface and kind of bypassing Gateway itself. And so, um, you know, H3 is managed by both JAXA and Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, which as far as, you know, us talking about busting each other's chops, I know that this is Ben's favorite cyberpunk uh <laughs> company <laughs> yeah so mhi is responsible for really the vehicle the development integration of the vehicle itself as well as uh it'll manage the launch services for it because at some of the h3 talks that i did go to they were very much you know talking about the commercial case uh, the business case for it and then jaxa will be in charge of uh, developing the ground facilities safety systems key components and then integrating uh, the overall system but uh, those new ground facilities will include a mobile launcher, which is what I always I always love that. And so mm -hmm. uh, between the, uh, the the current launch pad that they have and the mobile launcher, they want to actually aim for two H3 launches a month. So what? That would make a total launch cadence of, I see, right now we've got about five launches a year. Mm -hmm. And they want to bump it up to eight to ten by uh, 2023 or so. And that was a question that was brought up at you know one of these h3 talks that i went to is whether or not you'll be able to find that many and if you know jaxa itself uh if japan is going to want to the government will provide you know maybe five or six missions mm -hmm. a year then that really makes a shortfall of only just a handful of private kind of commercial flights that they need to do well and, and keep in mind that when they when they want to get up to this eight to ten per year cadence um that's going to be all h3 because they're you know they're getting rid of h2a mm. and so if h3 is going to be flying some of these smaller payloads that h2a used to fly um we're likely going to see a lot more ride sharing and, and multiple this is my guess nobody's actually said this but my guess is that we're going to see a lot of satellites flying you know two satellites per launch that makes yeah, sense. either either that or it'll, or it'll be underutilized. They ju they'll just fly it without any solid boosters and, and do smaller payloads. Right, right. They do. Yeah, they have the lighter variants available. That's the beauty of this mix and match kind of mm -hmm. <laughs> system. So you want to talk about sending H three to the moon? Oh my god, I really, really <laughs> yeah. do. Can I do oh, this part? Totally. <laughs> okay. 
So there's this beautiful uh, multi-step plan to get Japanese payloads to the moon. So the, the first is pretty straightforward. Um, it's getting to Gateway in two launches. <laughs> Really cool. So they are building uh, HTVX, which is like a larger HTV, which HTV um, should be pretty familiar. It goes to ISS uh, fairly often. So they're going to build HTVX, which is kind of like um, the expanded version of Cygnus, and they're going to be able to launch that into orbit. It's not going to be able to get to the moon, but it'll be able to get in uh, part of the way there. It'll be able to go into a highly elliptical orbit. Then they will launch a second. H3 with a modified upper stage. So instead of having a full payload fairing and a payload, it's basically going to be launching just the second stage into orbit. And this modified second stage will have a docking port on it. So that will be able to get up to this highly elliptical orbit, dock with HTVX, and then power its way all the way back or all the way up to the moon, um, and then slow down it and dock with the Lunar Orbit Gateway. And that's just the most Kerbal awesome thing mm -hmm. I've ever heard. <laughs> and and that's the basic first step. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so, so two launches to get to Gateway. I think that's really, really freaking cool. Then they're going to upgrade to their second step of this, of this three plan step. They will be um, building their uh, LRBs, the liquid rocket boosters. So basically imagine H3 doing an impression of Delta IV Heavy. So you'll have two of the first stages strapped onto the sides uh, of, of the, you know, first and a half, 1.5 stage, the, the core stage mm -hmm. and that will be able to get hdvx to the lunar orbit gateway in one launch right less cool more straightforward then there's the third step where they're going to be um, developing this this weird upper stage configuration called train and dennis i think i need to hand it off to you to explain what train stands for because it is an acronym oh, but just it's the worst barely. acronym ever. <laughs> I say, even as much as I complain about acronyms, this this physically hurts. It is <laughs> train T R A I N E stands for the Integrated Japan Original Moon Express. Yeah. So no, you've got a no. T and an R. No, 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 no. That would be that would be I J O M E <laughs> Ejom. Surely it's not called train. Ijome. It's called Ejom. Ijome. One would... <laughs> You'd think, I mean, sometimes, yeah, you'll peel off a few of the first letters. Sometimes maybe you'll have one <laughs> middle letter to, like, you know, just make this awesome acronym fit. This is just all middle letters and N letters other than the express in E. And they're not even adjacent to each other. The T and <laughs> yeah. the R in integrated are the beginning of... And hopefully this is something that'll be changed in development. <laughs> Jeez Louise, this is something. Yeah. yeah. So so it's the T and the R from integrated, the A from Japan, the I from original, the first I. Not and the I was gonna say, I. yeah, how do they know that's the first A, not the second <laughs> A from Japan? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and then the the N from Moon and the E from Express. And then I gotta I gotta mention that you put in parentheses seriously with a capital O and a capital S. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dennis, for that for that special report. So uh train, it's cool. But it's it's weird, you guys. 
So, so the idea is you take uh, HTVX and you flip it upside down and you put it on the upper stage of H3 and then you throw away the fuel tanks from, from HTVX or you shrink them down significantly. So you'll flip HTVX upside down. So the engines are facing up. You'll mount it to the second stage tank from H3. So you'll take this whole thing up into orbit so that the second, the H3 second stage is separated in Leo and then train flips upside down and burns to LTO. Okay. Um, but, but they, they, the thing is that they call these common engines. Um, so I think the common is earth departure and lunar landing. So you're not having a docked second stage that goes to the moon with you. Anyway, so this this thing at very least it's is launched upside down. <laughs> and then train the entire thing can not only get to um low lunar orbit, but it can also land on the surface. So if you want to send payload directly to the moon without stopping at the lunar gateway, this is one of the main ways that you're going to be doing it. That was a great explanation because I got to admit, I kind of, my eyes well, glazed well, here, over when I got the train and I was like, okay, uh, I'll have Ben explain it. Yeah, <laughs> well, so it says, the paper says, by combining the functions of the second stage of H3 and the landing vehicle, the mass ratio of the second stage of H3 is improved. So so I think that the, I, I, tr I could be wrong here, but I, I, the best I can tell is that train has these engines that point upside down. The boosters separate, the first stage of H3 separates, and then they flip this upper stage over and do the, the second stage burn to get into orbit with the train engines, then detach the second stage, quote unquote, the second stage, which is just a tank. Mm -hmm. No engines. I'm pretty sure this is the way it works because they say that it's the tank only. Mm -hmm. Second stage is tank only. So then they detach the second stage tank, no second stage engines, and then go to orbit that way. And, and I don't understand why they've mounted it upside down. Oh, they, they mount it upside down because you can't have the engines connected to the tank. You have to have the engines right. connected to the train upper stage. So, yeah, okay, right. I, I think I've got this. The, the diagram isn't super clear that that's the way it works, but I'm pretty sure... <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's the way it works. And so by doing this, this crazy Kerbal thing where, where you have propellant feed lines running through your propellant or uh, propellant feed lines running through your cargo section, by doing this, you eliminate the second stage engines, you eliminate all of the docking hardware, which remember the, the first stage or the first step version where you do two launches requires docking hardware. So you get rid mm -hmm. of all that. And by doing these two major mass savings, they're able in their first H3 heavy configuration with two liquid boosters, they're able to put three and a half tons on the moon. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> and then they have a configuration proposed where they have three liquid rocket boosters which is like falcon heavy can only have the two side boosters and people always say oh on reddit people are always like well why don't you add a third or a fourth that's because they integrate sideways and, and there's no way to hold the vehicle in that orientation with with this cross-shaped first stage but h3 apparently can because if they add a third liquid booster they can get up to four and a half tons to the lunar surface and if they add a fourth 
So this is H3 heavy with four liquid boosters. They can do six tons to the moon's surface. That is my version of Kerbal, just strapping on yeah. more stuff, you know. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. No no propellant crossfeed, let's be clear. We're not going that crazy. But six <laughs> tons to the lunar surface is really darn good. I mean, granted, all of your payloads are going to have to be able to accept G-loads through both ends, right? They can't, they're going to have to, if they're mounted on the bottom, they're going to have to hang. So I don't, I don't know exactly what this is going to look like. And then on top of that, they also have unpressurized cargo that can fly uh, next to the, uh, the, what do they call them? The common engines. But yeah, so, so basically, um, well, okay. So they call them common engines, but really only they're, they're going to have three engines to get into orbit. And then they only use one of them to land on the moon. But but holy cow, this is this is really cool. Although um, with each of these, these are three ton engines. So I don't know how they're going to be able to land six tons on the moon with one engine. So they must fire up a, a second engine to be able to do that. But in any event, this is just wacky and <laughs> wonderful. And I can't wait to see how, how Train ends up working out. And, you know, the idea of putting the HTVX upside down on top of the second stage, that's not too uncommon. I mean, that's something that has been done with other payloads. Once. Because, oh, has it just been once? I think it's integrated like upside down because they both share the same avionics. So once yeah. that second stage detaches, the HTVX keeps the avionics. Yeah. So it is very Kerbal. It seems like, I think it's just really cool that they're like willing to do this and seeing how they can work within the constraints of what, they had already done in developing the H3, and how would we be able to get payloads to Gateway or the lunar surface? And again, you know, there's a few different ways we could do it. This would be the easiest, so that should be step one. This would be the next step two, and then finally step three, where we can make yeah. it all the way to the surface. So I just thought it was yeah, really it's, neat. It's, it's a beautiful progression, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. Two launches for Gateway, one launch for Gateway, one launch for Lunar Surface. Very cool. So, of course, you know, this is meant to synergize with the Artemis program, as well as just generally getting some infrastructure around the moon. That seems to be the direction we're, you know, going. And so uh, even the easiest one, which would be the double launch, and I say easiest, kind of rolling my eyes mm -hmm. at myself, <laughs> uh, the simplest one, the earliest one, that would still be not taking place until something like 2025 or 2026. So this would follow up if Artemis actually does hit that 2024 target for Artemis 3, or is Ar Artemis... Is Artemis one the first one? Is that, that that's yeah, supposed to be? So. They want boots on the ground in 2024, right? And I think that's Artemis three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ar you're right. Artemis one is is basically EM one, um, mm. and that's just uh, retrograde orbit. Yeah, and three would be the first crewed landing. So this 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 you know isn't something that'll be uh, happening. I got yeah, I got I got nothing to say there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I already kind of said my piece. Whew, I'm I'm really glad this was uh, a full news topic because that's just very cool. So before we move on, we gotta we gotta have a little bit of echo here. So Sam just posted this crazy uh, <laughs> diagram. Uh, so he says that triple core heavies have been featured in Japanese plans for a long time, and then he he linked to um, this crazy diagram that shows an H2A. So it's called the H2A2000, which is kind of what you expect. Then H2A2120, which is a solid booster on one side and a liquid booster on the other. And then H2A2130, 
2200, which is two liquid boosters, and then a 2220, which is uh, two liquid boosters in either one or two solid stages. It's hard to tell from this uh, angle. I think it's two because that's what the third two stands for. Oh, okay. So, yeah, can you imagine uh, the 2120, which is like... That doesn't seem... <laughs> yeah. Asymmetric right thrust. to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Talk about Kerbal again, Ooh. like just <laughs> strapping in all kinds of random stuff. It is a very lopsided looking rocket, the most lopsided, strangest looking thing I've ever seen, actually. But I don't think it's ever launched, though, right? Like this is just something that they no. could do. Yeah, yeah. That's. Um... But I would love to see that lift off. I would love to see that. I wouldn't want to be anywhere near it. Let's do short and sweet. We got four of them this week. What's our first one, Ben? All right. Moving from Japan to China, Chang'e 5 is now scheduled to launch late next year. So it was originally scheduled to launch in late 2017, but now the mission has finally been rescheduled, though it could be delayed again if there are issues with Long March 5's return to flight later this year. The mission will return samples from Mons Rumker and will feature the first lunar orbit rendezvous since Apollo. Next up, the X-37 sets another record. So on October 27th, the X-37B touched down at Kennedy Space Center after spending 780 days in orbit, completing the fifth mission of the program. The completion of this mission puts it past its previous record by 62 days. This flight hosted several Air Force research experiments. One experiment of particular interest measured the performance of an oscillating heat pipe, a technology that is being tested for use in space and is capable of trans transferring heat 45 times more efficient than copper. So that's kind of a cool technology that uh, I don't know anything about. <laughs> but I hear it's really cool. Next up, NASA gives funding to look into an extended mission to Pluto. While the New Horizons mission to Pluto was undoubtedly successful, NASA has recently given funding to the team to study the attributes, feasibility, and cost of an orbital mission to the dwarf planet. Parameters would include two years orbiting Pluto before leaving the system via a gravity assist from Sharon to visit and study another Kuiper Belt object and a second dwarf planet. NASA is sponsoring this and nine other missions in preparation for the next planetary science decadal survey. Lastly, uh, another plot twist for the mole on Mars. And yes, that's a pun. The Mars InSight heat flow probe has had yet another setback. Uh, so after several weeks of progress boring into the Martian regolith, the mole has reversed direction and has actually moved back up through its hole. Images from InSight show the probe having backed about halfway out of the regolith. So far, the cause has not been determined, only that indications point to unexpected soil properties, according to a recent tweet. Experiments on the ground have shown that as the mole hammers, it jumps up a little bit on the rebound, and some types of sand can back fill and walk the mole back up out of its hole. From what I read, that's why the kind of two key things to hold the mole in place and not have it bounce back so much and rebound is the friction, which isn't working. But then there's also mm-hmm. on Earth, when it creates that little vacuum during the, sh- the hammer strike, that tends to put pressure that wants to pull mm. the mole back in. But with the Martian atmosphere, they're not getting that effect. So... Oh, that's a good point. Seems like there's a couple things that are acting against it. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that it was uh, that it was an atmospheric pressure issue, but that's interesting. That contributes to it, but I, I imagine that the friction it it was designed, I'm sure, to rely mostly on the friction of right. the borehole. But sure, that yeah. atmospheric effect probably, you know, that helps. That goes in the right direction. All right, so we're gonna move straight on to upcoming spaceflight events. We just got one, which, but it's a it's a very cool one. It's on November 11th, and it's a Falcon 9, and that's launching Starlink One. So this is the second batch of 60 satellites uh, for the Starlink constellation, and I guess this is the first set that's like 
actually going to be used. That first batch, I don't know what's going to happen. Some of them were deorbited and they did other experiments with them, but I don't know if they're going to go into service or if they're just going to eventually be deorbited. Yeah, they don't have any interlink capability, right? That's the the big deal. Is they can't That's talk right. to each other. But Elon did send a tweet through one of them. Mm-hmm. So, oh yeah, it, oh. yeah. What was that tweet? It was something like it works or something. Yeah, like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was meant to be his Watson come quickly kind of moment, you know? Like that, sure, this is supposed to go down yeah. in history. I don't know if it will, but <laughs> yeah, no idea, no idea if they actually have it. It seems like they probably do because they're not called out as specifically not having interlinks. So that's launching from Slick Forty at Cape Canaveral, and that's at fifteen hundred UTC. I'm sure that'll be a cool mission to watch and to see those get deployed. And hopefully we'll get to see a Starlink train this time because I didn't get to see it. So, yeah, me neither. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's your upcoming space flight event. That's the one. All right. And let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.